We're in chapter 18 of Matthew, and we've been learning about the context, especially of Matthew and the way that Matthew brings out prophetic power. The fulfillment of prophecy through the power of Jesus Christ, literally showing the people that he is displaying this prophetic power to, that he is the Messiah. He is the promised one. He is the one that is there not only to show who he is. So as you're turning to this section here in Matthew chapter 18, we're going to be picking it up here in, in verse 21. Not only are you here to listen to a message, but we have the privilege of also celebrating an anniversary tonight. And I'm going to have, if you don't mind, Alfredo and Angelina come up here. This is their ninth anniversary, by the way. And we get to pray for them and bless them at the beginning of this service. The amazing thing about a, an anniversary, especially as a, a Christian couple, you get to look back on your life together and, and see those hard times and see the future that you have together in the Lord. And we're so glad that you're here tonight and that you're faithful in coming and the privilege of being able to bless you tonight. Yes, yeah, yeah. So let me put my hands on you guys and we'll, and if you wouldn't mind, just put your hands forward and we'll, do you want to share something too? The Lord been able to bless the marriage. Mm -hmm. Okay. Dear Father, I thank you so much for Alfredo and Angelina, Lord, and they're just their love for you their love for each other. And tonight, as we approach this passage that we're even going to be addressing tonight, Lord, the understanding that marriage is between a, a man and a woman in a lifelong covenant. And yes, there are hard times, but you're there in the hard times, growing each of us to a, a closer relationship with you. And as we model you in a marriage, Lord, I ask that you would give Alfredo the, the strength every day to be that gentle leader, that, that wise leader in his home, and Angelina, just that loving part of the family, Lord, and just to be the example to their kids, and, and that these nine years would double, and then triple, and then quadruple, and then after that, over and over again. Lord, let it be a, a new experience, a new joy every single day in their lives. So, Lord, bless this marriage tonight. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Man, God bless you. By, by, by the way, that's uh, one of the best gifts you can give to your spouse. Just the privilege of asking them to come to church on your anniversary. It's truly a, a blessing to see them. Uh, and now we're approaching the subject. By the way, as we're in this section here, we're going to re read these uh, first couple of verses here. And remember in this section, it's all about restoration. It's all about restoration. Whether it was the lost sheep that was found, whether it was the, the church discipline that we talked about last week with the two or three witnesses in this church discipline, it's all about restoration. It's never to exclude, it's always to restore uh, the relationship. And especially now toward the end of Matthew chapter 18, we're going to see how important that is in forgiveness and then in one of the hardest places to forgive, the family structure itself, the husband and wife relationship. So we're going to read the first couple of verses here. We'll pray and then we'll get into this. In Matthew chapter 18, verse 21, it says, Then Peter came to him and said, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times. Jesus said to him, I, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to 70 times seven. And therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a certain king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. And when he began to settle accounts, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. But as he was not able to pay, his master commanded that he be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and that payment to be made. The servant therefore fell down before him saying, Master, have patience with me and I will pay you all. And the master of that servant was moved with compassion, released him and forgave him the debt. And so, Father, as we approach you tonight, we too have been forgiven a massive debt greater than 10,000 talents. E even if we don't know how much that is, it's a huge amount. But 
infinitely more than that, you have forgiven us. That, that sin that we have committed against you personally, let alone the sin that we've committed against other people. So Lord, we thank you so much for your forgiveness. We don't learn anything else tonight just to know that you have forgiven us an insurmountable debt that we could never, ever pay on our own. It's only through the blood of Jesus Christ that we get to celebrate tonight with communion that we even have the ability to come before you and know that our sins are forgiven and you've given us not just forgiveness, but the abundant grace of your righteousness in our life so that we can experience fellowship with you. So Lord, we thank you so much for that. So Lord, as we, we go through your word, give us wisdom. Let your power be shown. Help us see as, as through the eyes of Matthew writing these words, writing this text, just the privilege of seeing prophecy powerfully fulfilled in their midst tonight, Lord. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. I, I, I don't know if you know how much a, a talent is, and, and it's going to become clearer as we get to the next section, but one talent is 600 denarii, okay? And a denarii is a day's wage, okay, which is the standard form of payment. We'll see how every part of this is going to fit together here in chapter 18, 19, and 20. And when you get to chapter 20 and, and you learn about denarii again, you're going to be reminded of it going back here to chapter 18. A, a denarii is a day's wage. So one talent, one of these 10,000 talents is equal to 600 days wages. Just one of the talents. Now imagine 10,000 talents and just add up the zeros. That's the easy way to figure it out. That th This is literally 60 million days wages or 60 million denarii, okay? Do you think you could ever work 60 million days in your life? And, and the amazing thing is this servant is saying, I'm going to pay it all back. Okay, do you think the master believes this guy? Now, now the, the other thing is, how did he rack up so much debt? How did he rack up so much debt? How much interest is on a 60 million day wage credit card, right? We're just trying to get the credit limit for that. It would be impossible. But can you imagine a boss or an employer that is willing to go into debt for 60 million days for you, okay? This is the first thing that you see, that this boss or this employer, and of course, we know who this is. It, it says it right there at the beginning, the kingdom of heaven is like a certain king. Whenever we see the kingdom of heaven is like, who is the kingdom of heaven like? Jesus Christ, okay? So th this is Jesus portraying himself in this parable showing, first of all, the graciousness of himself, allowing one of the people that works for him to gain this huge amount of debt, 60 million days wages, and then forgiving it all, completely marking off the whole debt. Now, would any of us ever be able to do that? Now, the interesting thing is, as we get into this, as we see this, it started with a question. And who was the person that asked the question? It goes all the way back to Peter, okay? And Peter asked uh, Jesus, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me? And I forgive him up to seven times. Peter is thinking himself very spiritual in this context because the standard, normal way that a, a good Jew would forgive a certain number of times was only up to three. And what Peter is doing is, is he's choosing a number, this number of perfection, the, the, this number of God. And as is, we read into this, saying, I'm going to be super spiritual. I'm going to say up to seven times. 
What does Jesus say? Seven times 70. And again, we have to multiply. Jesus is making us use our math 490 times. Now, the interesting thing is, as we walk through this, what Jesus is showing by giving this parable is the number that is being forgiven is a lot higher than 490. Because what happens when someone offends you 491 times? Does that give you the right thou not forgive them? What Jesus is going to show here is the insurmountable debt that every single one of us have and how we treat those that have just a small, minuscule amount of debt toward us. And guess what? We do it all the time, including me. We count the number of times. We say, I, I, I'm not going to forgive you because you did this against me. Now, the amazing thing is, this is right before the family structure in the very next paragraph. Okay? This is right before the marriage covenant that Jesus is going to talk about with divorce and how divorce literally destroys a marriage out of uh, trust issues or, or out of issues of unforgiveness. And the reason why this is so important, why these are laid out one right after each other, right after, by the way, the lost sheep, right after, right before, or right after the illustration of church discipline, what Jesus does in terms of restoring in every single way, it builds up to the point of showing us that we have this insurmountable debt that is infinitely greater to God himself, and yet he forgave every single one of us. And if we have that perspective, the debt that we have towards someone else or someone else has towards us is small in comparison, a, a drop in the ocean, a, a, a small piece of sand on the seashore. In fact, look at the very next section here. The same servant, by the way, immediately goes out after being forgiven 60 million days wages. And what does he do to his fellow employee? Verse 28, but that servant went out and found one of his fellow servants who owed him 100 denarii. And he laid hands on him, took him by the throat saying, Pay me what you owe. And we look at that guy and we say, that is horrific. That is bad. That, that should be punished. We always see the sin in other people. We always see the unforgiveness in other people. And yet, what is in our own heart? And how many times do we do that ourselves? And, and if you compare this, by the way, remember a denarii is one day's wage. So this is a hundred days wages. Would this be able to be worked off? Yeah. It may not take 100 days. It may take a year. But is this something at least that has the ability within a, the frame of a, life pers or a person's life to be able to be worked off or to pay off? Yes. The other guy, though, what was he forgiven? Something that was impossible to pay off uh, to a, a normal salary of a normal person or a normal servant, right? 60 million days wages. And yet, yet he goes out and tries to get this 100 denarii. But by the way, do you think this 100 denarii would even make a, a dent in 60 million denarii? No. And, and yet we think the debt that someone owes us is our right to collect. Especially when it comes to offenses especially when it comes to tit-for-tat, or especially when it comes to even the body of Christ, or even our own family, brothers and sisters and spouses, children. And how long can that generational affliction of unforgiveness affect generation after generation? And it's horrible, right? What does Jesus always want to do? He wants to restore. 
And he's showing us how he does this by forgiving the debt. What does uh, this fellow servant do? Of course, the other servants that are watching, they go to the right source. It says there in verse 29, so his fellow servant fell down on his face, begged him saying, have patience with me and I will pay you all. And he would not and went and threw him into prison till he should pay the debt. By the way, can you pay your debt if you're not able to work? So when his fellow servants saw what he had done, they were very grieved. They came and they told their master all that had been done. Then his master, after he called him, said to him, you wicked servant. What does God call the sin of unforgiveness? He says it very plainly in this section. What does he call the servant that is unforgiving in his heart? Wicked. This is one of the most wicked things you can do because it's the complete antithesis or the opposite of God himself. Because what is God's heart toward sinners? What is God's heart toward our debt? He always forgives. He always makes a way for forgiveness. I forgave you all that debt because you begged me. Should you not also have compassion on your fellow servant, just as I had pity on you? Now, you may have a different translation here. We're in the New King James Version. We've been using various translations as we've been going through different books of the Bible. But specifically in this verse right here, the Legacy Standard Bible or the NLT, the New Living Translation, actually use a better translation for this because the same word that is used at the beginning, compassion, is the same word that's at the end of this section. So in the Legacy Standard Bible, it says, should you not also have had mercy on your fellow slave in the same way that I had mercy on you? The comparison here is that with the same amount of forgiveness and mercy and grace that has been shown to us, what are we supposed to do to those around us? Have the same mercy and grace. The problem is we think our sins aren't as bad as other people. Right? We have this perspective where I'm the good son, as we're going to see later on in the, the prodigal son, or I, I'm the one with the most talents, or I'm the one that, that has the privilege of having this status or whatever it is. And we have this holier-than-thou attitude of those that are around us. Or that person had a different past than me. Or that person did this. And my sins are small compared to that person's sin. No, sin is sin. All sin is infinitely impossible to pay for ourselves. There's only one way to pay for any of our sins, right? I can never even work off just one of my sins. Because the price that had to be paid was perfection, Jesus Christ himself. It says there in verse 34, and the master was angry, delivered him up to the torturers until he should pay all that was due him. Wow. Not just prison, by the way, to be tortured. And again, this is an illustration, not of a, thank God this isn't an employee-employer relationship. Thank God that none of us work for an employer like this, right? But you understand what this is in relation to. This is in relation to the kingdom of heaven. What happens when we ourselves are not forgiven our debt? What is the cost of the repayment of that debt? Not just death, but torture for eternity. Where there is gnashing of teeth, the Bible says. Where there is sulfur, where, where there's the screams of eternity forever and ever. What is called hell in the Bible. Would any of us ever want someone to go through? 
And the privilege that we have, especially tonight, being able to take communion, is first of all to realize what Jesus Christ did for us, for each and every single one of us. As the pastor said on Sunday, that the whosoevers or whoevers we're going to see in the section that we're going to see in, in, in the communion service. But the privilege of understanding it, should I be willing to tell those around me that Jesus is offering this free gift also? And who am I to determine whom I tell that to? Because it's just as bad. It's just as bad. If I say, I don't want to forgive you and not tell someone about Jesus Christ's love for them. Verse 35 ends it like this. So my heavenly father also will do to each of you, or if each of you from his heart does not forgive his brother his trespasses. That's scary, by the way. That's scary. To understand that this relationship that I have with Jesus Christ can be hindered by my own unforgiveness toward someone in my life. And how we need to examine ourselves. Is there someone in my life where there's unforgiveness? And by the way, the very next section talks about marriage, which is one of the hardest relationships to have unforgiveness in or to forgive someone else, especially the family. You think about the previous section here, it's talking about a, a job setting. That in itself is hard. People that you're with for a majority uh, of your time during the week where people that you're with that have very different lifestyles or, or choices than your own and, and you're brought together in a company setting or in, in a, a work setting and you have to work with one another and you have to learn to use your talents and your gifts in order to help this company grow. But then in the very next section, it's with a relationship with someone whom you're stuck with when you get back home. Do you see that? What Jesus is doing? He's covering all the bases here no matter what part of your life, whether you're at work, whether you're out in society, or now when you get back home. I love the way Matthew sets all these things up. It, the context is absolutely amazing. And last week we talked about there, there was no chapter divisions or subheadings or any of that kind of stuff when Matthew was first writing this book. And so if you just read right through, the context just comes to life. What Jesus is doing is showing that in every single part of our life, there's this temptation to be unforgiving. And it can infect who we are. Oh, we can be put on the face at work or the face at church. But where the rubber hits the road or where it really comes down to is now in chapter 19 in the marriage structure where the masks come off and the mitts come off and it can get bloody and it can get heated. And in that car on your way to church when you're arguing and then all of a sudden you get out of the car. Hi, brother. Everything's fine. And then when you get back into the car, what happens? Pick up the argument where you left off. We put on those masks. I'm going to be really honest here. This was a long time ago. And the only reason why I'm bringing this up is because you guys are waiting for this, aren't you? You're just salivating right now, okay? I'm going to be really honest here, okay? This was a long time ago. And the only reason why I'm saying this is because the person who noticed this in my own life is here tonight. He always comes on the first Wednesday of the night or of the month. It's John Kleins. And this was a long time. I don't even know if he remembers this, but I was in a funk on a Sunday morning. I, I was purposely sad on purpose, okay? Because it was something that happened in my own house, okay? Between my wife and I. And it wasn't Emily's fault. It's never Emily's fault, okay? It's never Emily's fault. It's always my fault. And, and in this case, it truly was, okay? And, and, and I was just, I, and I, had, at that time we were teaching Sunday school and, and John Kleins noticed this in my life. 
And he had the loving courage to come alongside me and notice that. And, and it convicted me. And, and this is the privilege that we have, especially in this next section, chapter 19. Coming alongside of couples that are going through a hard time. Because we can be adults and act like kids in a marriage the most immature people in a marriage relationship where we have to get the upper hand or we have to say the last word or we have to be right. And whether you're watching online or here tonight, don't ever point to the person next to you. Always point to yourself first. Whenever you read the Proverbs, always point to yourself first. Don't wish that, that person that you're having an argument with or unforgiveness with or they did something bad to you is here tonight listening to me talk to them. Because I'm not talking to them, I'm talking to you. I'm talking to me first and then to you. And this is the way it should always be when the scriptures, by the way. So Matthew chapter 19, now it came to pass when Jesus had finished these sayings that he departed from Galilee he came to the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. And many multitudes followed him, and he healed them there. The Pharisees also came to him, testing him, saying to him, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for just any reason? Now this phrase is specifically put here because the Pharisees or any Jewish man of a religious standing could, for any reason, give his wife a written divorce letter and say, because you didn't cook this for me or because you didn't do this for me, I'm going to divorce you. This is makes uh, any spouse, let alone a, a wife, have to be on pins and needles all the time. And, and they, they did this loophole in the law in which a, a, a person, especially of a a religious standing, a Pharisee, if you will, or a, a person of a higher religious standing could do this written letter of divorce to their wife saying, because you have abused me by not doing this, I have the right now to divorce you. Most of the time it was just because of a minor infraction and they wanted a younger wife. So Jesus, of course, he sees through this, verse 4, and he answered and said to them, as with all of their questions, have you not read that he who made them at the beginning made them male and female? The interesting thing is Jesus doesn't even address what it means to be married. He defines what marriage is. And doesn't marriage need to be defined today? Because what is the definition according to the scripture, not just all the way back in Genesis, but even here, Jesus' mouth, words of red, uh, defining what a marriage is by gender, by the way. How does he define marriage? Male and female, biological male biological female, and we do have to put that, unfortunately, too. Because how does Jesus define it? And, and again, going back to the scriptures, going back to the way that God designed human beings, just anatomically, just in their physical nature, defining a male, defining a female. And what is God's desire for the male and the female? Does he want them to be married? Yeah. Does he want them to have that fulfilling relationship that mirrors Christ and the church, mirrors God and his people? Yes, he does. And he said, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And you've probably heard this many times at weddings, just that, that privilege that we have to be able to define a uh, marriage relationship. What is the end result of these two people that were once independent, that were once 
single, that were once living separate lives. What is the purpose of marriage? To bring them together as one. So that they come together as a single unit. And of course, it always represents a Christ himself and the church, a God himself as his, and his people. And so when he says in the very next section there, so then they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no man separate. And again, you hear that hopefully at every single wedding you attend. Unfortunately, what happens in a marriage relationship? Most of the times before nine years. Most of the time, it, it's very short unfortunately, in our world. Or we have these certain excuses that we make for separation or for divorce. Now, what Jesus is showing the Pharisees is there, there is a reason for divorce, and it's because of man's fallen nature, our sin and our stubbornness. But was it ever God's design? No, never. And rather than being humble in marriage, we are proud and we want our own way and we want our own wants met. In fact, Jesus says this there in verse 7 and 8. They said to him, why then did Moses command to give a certificate of divorce and to put her away? Now, they had taken the certificate of divorce and they'd extended it as they always did with the law. They made these loopholes that they could write a certificate of divorce, despite the fact that there was only one reason for divorce in the Old Testament. In verse 8, it gives us that reason. He said to them, Moses, because of the hardness of your hearts, permitted you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it was not. Why was there allowed divorce in the first place? It says it right there because of our hard heart, because of our sinful nature, because we always want a way out. What's the biggest excuse that people have for not getting married today? Why? They don't want to be committed. They don't want to be committed. They want to be able to get out any time. And unfortunately, what we see here is that it's very embedded in our hearts to be hard-hearted, stiff-necked people. The very nicknames that God always gave, if you were with us when we were going through the major prophets and the minor prophets, the very nickname that God gave his own people. They were hard-hearted and stiff-necked, right? And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for Spirit, sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery and whoever marries her who is divorced commits adultery what is the very definition of what it means when there is a divorce and then you go with the specific intent of marrying someone else what does jesus himself define that as adultery that that's scary and, and knowing their hearts knowing the Pharisees' hearts, this is why they were writing these certificates of divorce. Because they wanted to be within the law, they still wanted to obey the law according to the letter, but do it in such a way where they could do what they wanted to. So they gave their right of divorce, they divorced their wife thinking that they were now free and clear, and then they would marry someone else. Unfortunately, do we ever learn our lesson? Now, there is certain understandings behind this. What is the biblical reason for divorce? It says it right. There, there is a, if there is abuse, if there is, whether it's physical, whether it's there's you know, sexual immorality within the marriage, is there a, a lawful way for divorce? Yes. If you are in an abusive relationship, does God want you to stay in that abusive relationship? No, he would never do that. 
But the reason why we see this definition of marriage is it defines who God is toward us. Is God faithful to us? And would God ever give us a certificate of divorce? No. And so in a marriage relationship, when there's a breaking of that marriage relationship, what is it saying about God himself? Is God able to restore that relationship? Thank God he does, and thank God he wants to. perfect example of this is the book of Hosea. You can go back to the previous sermons. I love the book of Hosea. In fact, the very first sermon I did here in this church way back in 2010 was on the book of Hosea. It's one of the most beautiful stories in the Bible. It's completely amazing how, how, how this guy who, who himself is being the example of God to the people of Israel, his wife goes off and commits adultery, uh, commits prostitution herself to literally every single guy in the town, and yet God tells this guy to go woo her back. And to be that example of God to us, because we're not the Hosea, we're the Gomer, we're the unfaithful one. And it's God who is faithful to us all the time. When I am unfaithful, is God always faithful? Yes, he is. Verse 10, his disciples said to him, if such is the case of the man with his wife, is it better not to marry? So if marriage is so hard, God, if marriage is so hard, Jesus, isn't it better just not to marry? Now that's very naive at times, but is that also part of God's design? Is there a gift of celibacy? Yes. In fact, Jesus defines it here in the very next section, because not only does he address the employer-employee relationship, not, not only does he address our, our life outside of the family, not only does he address our life inside the family, but now he addresses singlehood as well. Because what is the purpose for celibacy? Or what is the purpose for being celibate? Unfortunately, what we do when we're single, we do the opposite. When we're married, we do the opposite. When we're single, we want to have sex. And when we're married, the opposite, right? What is God designing here? I'm not meaning to be funny here. But what is God's design? It's meant to be intimate. And in terms of singleness, it's meant to look forward to intimacy within the marriage relationship. In fact, look at what he says there in verse 11. This is, again, it's Jesus talking. And he said to them, all cannot accept these sayings. Aren't you glad for that? Because not all of us can accept this. Aren't you glad for that? That, that, that God provides a way for marriage to have that intimacy that can't be found anywhere else and is not ever designed to be found anywhere else. Look at what it says there. But only those to whom it has been given, for there are eunuchs who were born thus from their mother's womb. There are eunuchs who were made eunuchs by men. There are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the kingdom of heaven's sake. He who is able to accept it, let him accept it. Now, unfortunately, this too is misinterpreted at times. What, what Jesus is defining here is what we call a celibacy or, or the ability to have that single-minded love for the Lord that blocks out all those temptations. That, that is single-to-the-rapture attitude. That, that desire to have the kingdom of God forefront in your mind. And to put all those other things. And, and thank God that there are people like that. But what Jesus is defining here, what he's showing is that no matter what part of your life, what stage of your life you're in, is there always the desire to have that relationship with God. 
no matter what part of your life it's in. God, God doesn't leave anyone unscathed, whether you're married or you're single. He makes sure that he addresses these things specifically. In fact, in verse 13, he shows it perfectly. Again, this is all in context. What does it say in verse 13? Then little children were brought to him that he might put his hands on them and pray, but the disciples rebuked them. After hearing these magnificent words from the Lord uh, uh, of not being unforgiving, what do they immediately do with these little kids? You're, you're not supposed to be here. You're bothering Jesus. Who are the most forgiving people? Yeah. What Jesus is showing them, as he showed them earlier, when he takes that little child and says, this is the greatest one in the kingdom of heaven. And we, we just read it just a couple of chapters before. We don't know the exact time length, but, but it's very close in terms of what we just read last week and now seeing here. He shows them again uh, through the life of a little child what it means to trust. What it means to trust. And Jesus does it in a perfect way, verse 14. But Jesus said, let the little children come to me and do not forbid them. For of such is the kingdom of heaven. What would it be like if we have the trust of a child in every single part of our life? That you trust God like a child in your work. That you trust God like a child. That desire for trust in your marriage relationship. That you would trust God in your singleness. No matter what part of life you're in, do we have to trust God? Always. I didn't get married until I was 28 years old. And I had to trust God for a long time. I had to trust God. Just one of those things that, that you're laying this your life out before God. I have a brother who's 15 months younger than I am, and he got married four years before me. And we lived in the same house, by the way. I, my, my room was right above where they stayed. And it was horrific. It was horrific. Because my younger brother was married, right? And, and, and you just have to picture it, okay? Uh, but when you, you think about trusting in God, what, what does it truly mean to trust in God in every single stage of your life? And what does it mean to understand of the debt that has been paid for every single one of us and trusting God that he's going to take care of our relationships in terms of forgiveness. And can you trust God in every part of your relationship? Whether it's at work, whether it's in your marriage, or whether you're single. When your wife or your husband says that certain thing and you can just let it go. Or does that certain thing and you can just let it go. Or that person at work, and you can just let it go. Because who's ultimately in control? God. In fact, we're going to get to celebrate that in just a little bit. And again, and I love this section because, again, it's all context. It brings it back to salvation itself. Because a rich young ruler comes, verse 16, Now behold, one came and said to him, Good teacher, what good thing shall I do? that I may have eternal life. This is right after the 10,000 talents, the 60 million days of forgiveness. This guy comes to him with all this wealth and says, what must I do to be saved? What good thing must I do to be saved? And Jesus lays it out for him. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, honor your father and mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The Ten Commandments. If you meet every single one of the Ten Commandments, you are now doing something good. You are now have that standard of righteousness. Now, by the way, the, what he says in the very next verse, don't believe the guy. 
If someone tells you this, the same thing, don't believe them. Because of any of us, anyone ever kept all 10 of the commandments. We'll talk about that in the next, yes. But have any of us ever kept all the Ten Commandments? No. And even if you thought you've never murdered, Jesus counteracts that, by the way. Even if you never thought you committed, not committed adultery, guess what? Jesus counteracts that. E even if you've never stolen something physically, Jesus counteracts that. If you've never borne false witness, Jesus counteracts that because it not just goes to your actions, but it goes to your thoughts as well. Because the standard of salvation is high. Righteousness is always perfection, and none of us meet that requirement. Verse 20, the young man said to him, all these things I have kept from my youth, what do I still lack? Jesus said to him, if you want to be perfect, go sell what you have, give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. And what does that rich young ruler do? What did he love more than Jesus? When the young man heard that saying, he went away sorrowful. Jesus is so wise in how he addresses this, though. He doesn't make salvation easy. He, he doesn't say, pray this prayer and you're going to go to heaven. Right? He gives the most impossible way for salvation. He defines what salvation is. None of us can attain it by ourselves. And even if you think you've attained it, you haven't. Right? That, that's what the illustration of the rich young ruler is. You think you've done everything right in your life. There's always one place in your life where you haven't. All of us. And most of the time, more than one. Verse 23, then Jesus said to his disciples, Assuredly, I say to you that it is hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. And again, I say to you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And by the way, this isn't just a money. This isn't just possessions. This isn't just wealth. Because all of us have that pride in our lives that we're unwilling to give up. And the illustration here isn't a narrow passage that a camel would have to get on his knees to go through. It's that little small slit in a needle. Because that truly is impossible. What Jesus is showing is the impossibility of salvation. And there's only one way to attain it. And he, does, he tells us in the very next section, by the way. And again, unfortunately, a lot of people take this out of context, okay? This is all about salvation. The impossibility of salvation. Jesus uses that word specifically on purpose with men it is impossible with us but who is it not impossible with jesus says this in verses 25 and 26 when the disciples heard it they were greatly astonished saying who then can be saved because they knew themselves right there i can't be saved peter knew he couldn't be saved John knew he couldn't be, Andrew said he couldn't be saved. All the disciples understood their eyes are open. I, I can't be saved. I haven't kept up any of these things. I can't do it. It's impossible with me. And th this, by the way, is the true meaning of this verse. Th this isn't about asking God for something. Th this isn't about some sort of a name it and claim it type event. Th this, th this has nothing to do with that. It has everything to do with salvation. Because the most impossible thing that you can ask God for is salvation. Do you understand? Because none of us can attain it ourselves. And when we really understand that, it makes salvation so precious, greater than 60 million denarii, greater, greater than all the debt in the world. 
when I, when I truly understand that there's only one impossible thing that I can ask God for and only he can fulfill. And it all comes down to salvation. And does God want to restore, by the way? Yes, he does. Says it there, but Jesus looked at them and said, with man, this is, he says that word specifically, impossible. There is no other way. I can't do it with good works. I can't do it with some sort of thing that I do, walking on my knees for a certain number of distance or going to church a certain number of times or doing certain things or having this superiority of righteousness in my life or even keeping all the commandments because none of us can do it. It is truly impossible with men. But thank God for the next verse. Thank God for the butts in the Bible, by the way. I didn't invent that phrase. There's a better guy that invented that phrase. But with God, all things are possible. Wow. Aren't you glad that there's a possibility that you have salvation? And that God gives it to you. And we get to take communion tonight. Isn't that the perfect verse to end on? We get to take communion tonight. But the only way you can have communion is if Jesus Christ, because if you don't know Jesus Christ, this doesn't mean anything. It's not about we don't have membership or even if it's your first time here tonight. It doesn't matter. Do you know Jesus Christ? And can you know Jesus Christ right now if you don't? Yes, you can. The privilege that we have is we get to do it together. And as we've been going through, and I'll ask the men to, to come forward and the worship team to come forward if you have a song to sing. They'll be handing out the elements. I, I just ask that you just keep them. We're going to be going over the, the communion story together. We'll take it together corporately. But the privilege that we've had, especially going through the Gospels, is we get to read the communion event in the Gospel that we're in. So now that we're in Matthew, we get to read the communion story in the book of Matthew. And then when we're in the book of Mark, we get to read it in Mark and then in Luke and in John. Uh, so the privilege as we walk through this is to look at it through the eyes of Matthew, who, by the way, was there. He, he, he was one of the apostles in the upper room while, while Jesus was handing out these elements. He, he was an eyewitness to these events. So the privilege that we have tonight as you hold those elements, really examine your life. Say, say Lord, thank you so much for this, this bread. Thank you so much. For this cup. Remember what Jesus Christ has done for you. And as we come to the end of the service later on, we'll actually walk through this together. We'll get to take this together and read these verses. Thank you. Hand out the elements, guys. Thank you.